Well, I want to ask you this morning to think about the virtue of humility. I want you to think about biblical humility as we approach the Bible. I was a little worried that uh, maybe my, my sermon preparation this week was, wasn't as humble as it should be, and not that it was prideful, but that it was greedy. I'm greedy this morning to, to finish not only chapter 25, but chapter 26. Uh, we're going to do it all this morning, so we're going we're to cover very, very important verses about God's election, His gracious election of the saved, and we're going to talk about Isaac's life, and then we're going to reflect again on God's gracious choice. And I think the key to understanding and believing and living the truth found in this text this morning is simply humility. I'd like to, I'd like to read you a couple of promises, a couple of verses about humility in the Bible as we just prepare for that. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 15, 33. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. So many wonderful promises tied to humility. Now, it makes total sense to us, I mean it does, that when we approach God, when we approach holy God, that we must do so with humility because he's God and we're not. And yet, so often, I think, we can walk into church on a Sunday morning almost as if we're skeptics sitting in judgment of the word of God, whether we'll decide whether it's true, we'll decide whether we'll follow it or not, even though it's his word. Never is this more true than when our humility uh, is tested, when our human responsibility, we are responsible for living to God, his way, crashes up against God's sovereignty, that he will accomplish his purposes. When those two, when those two things hit, they tend to challenge our humility. And that very thing is in our text this morning. And the text reminds us of our need for a gracious and merciful God. If anything does, it's this. So if you'd like to follow along on the sermon outline this morning, you'll see this theme. We are all born children of the flesh with no love for God, but by God's gracious choice. You know, choice and election are the same words. To choose, to elect, same words, regardless of how the Bible translates them. We've been born again by the Spirit in Christ. And so we humble ourselves and boast only in the gospel. Let me begin reading in chapter 25, beginning at verse 19, and I'll read to the end of the chapter this verse that you're probably very familiar with already. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to the Lord to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Well, you may remember from our very first sermon in Genesis, we talked about this Hebrew word toldot. This is the eighth toldot that we have. It's the word generations, uh, explaining these are, the, these are the generations of. These are the generations of Isaac. And so there are ten of these that mark out the book of Genesis, and this is the eighth, which means we're almost done, right? Well, it's the eighth, and we're still only halfway through the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 25, there are 50 chapters, so we still have a little bit of work to go. But this eighth generations of is about Isaac, which is really about Jacob and Esau, and mostly Jacob. The, the next generation, the ninth of them, will be about the generations of Esau. And then finally, the tenth one, the final one, will be about the generations of Jacob, those who came after him, mostly the story of Joseph. So in Genesis, by, by the way, the word Genesis, remember, means origins. Moses is following the line of the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. With every new generation, God graciously chooses the line of the seed of the woman. We've been reading genealogy after genealogy after genealogy about this. God is determined to bring about his purposes for his glory through the people he chooses. With Abraham, God reveals that it is faith that is credited to us as righteousness. That was, a, that was an important reveal, which helps us to make sense of things. Because everyone God chooses is a sinner. He did not look down and find the righteous ones. There were none righteous, not even one. Not even Abraham. And so God chooses to make his promises to Abraham of land, seed, and blessing. And God ratifies those promises in a covenant. And God himself will bring about his promises. All Abraham has to do is trust God and believe in God's promises by faith and carried the sign of circumcision, which is the tangible evidence of Abraham's obedience. In verse 19, Moses emphasizes that Isaac is Abraham's son. You see the redundancy there. He wants to make clear that the baton is being passed, the covenant is being moved to the next generation. 
God's promises of land, seed, and blessing have been passed on to Isaac, the chosen heir. And following the pattern of God's purpose, those promises will be passed on to Isaac's son. But there's just a little problem. Rebekah, like Sarah before her, is barren. After 20 years of marriage, Isaac and Rebekah have no children. For whatever reason, Rebekah's barren, so Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife, which is a prayer of faith. No adopting Eleazar of Damascus, the way Abraham did. No sleeping with concubine Hagar, the way Abraham did. Isaac and Sarah are trusting the Lord to fulfill his promises. And Isaac prays, and God grants his prayer, and Rebekah conceives. But there's something strange going on in Rebekah's womb. The children struggled together within her. And this is a violent struggle. This is not, oh honey, put your hand right here. I think you might, you might feel an elbow there. But you have to feel real close. Wait a minute. No, this is a violent struggle. The Hebrew word really means crashing. These two babies in the womb are crashing together. Crashing against one another, fighting for more space. And so Rebecca prays, which is refreshing after reading Sarah's story, isn't it? Rebecca inquires of the Lord. She says, Lord, what's happening and why? And the Lord tells Rebecca in verse 23 Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. God's explanation of what's happening in Rebecca's womb is a prophecy of what will become of these twins. These are not identical twins. These are not the twins who instinctively know when the other is sad and, or maybe harmed. You know, they don't have that kind of a connection. They're not wonder twin powers activated. They're not, they're not united in any special way whatsoever. They're divided. There's a war raging inside of Rebecca. These twins represent two peoples who are crashing against each other, two nations warring against each other, fighting for position. Jacob will be the nation of Israel. Esau will be the nation of Edom. Remember, the word Genesis means origin. The book of Genesis records for us our origin. The origin of the created universe, all the way back in chapter 1 and 2. The origin of created mankind. The origin of nations. All of these genealogies have been genealogies of nations. And so the story of Jacob and Esau is also an origin story. Moses writes Genesis and, and the whole Pentateuch. And he hands it to the Israelites. Remember Moses' original audience. They're camped on the Jordan River preparing to enter Canaan and fight to take possession of the promised land. They are to read Genesis and remember their origins. They are to read this passage and answer the questions, where did we come from? And why are we here? This is their backstory. It began with Adam, of course, and it moved to Abraham and Isaac, but most particularly, it points to Jacob as their origin. They're not called, they're not called the Adamites or the Abramites or the Isaacites. They're, the, they're Israel. They're the Israelites. God would change Jacob's name to Israel, and his descendants are called the Israelites. God has brought them out of bondage in Egypt, 
That's what Moses just accomplished, and now he's writing the Pentateuch. And through the testing in the wilderness, and God has done all of these things, these wonderful, miraculous deliverance things to them so that they would be his people and take possession of the land. We, the church, can look back at our origins and remember that we too are children of the promise. That Jesus is the true and better Adam. That Jesus is the true and faithful Israel. That Jesus is the promised seed from God's chosen line who is our Savior. So whether in good times or bad times, God's people can look back at their origins and be strengthened with confidence in our origins. This account is here to answer the question, how did Jacob come into the world? How did Israel come into the world? And there are two things in our faith origin story. One, God made him, and two, God chose him. Those are the things that we see in the text. Therefore, Israel should look back and see this. First, God made Jacob or Israel. Now, there's one sense in which God made all people, but there's another special sense in which God made Jacob in particular. It's in our text. Rebekah was barren. Jacob, Israel, was an impossibility until God miraculously intervened to create these twins. Therefore, Israel should look back and remember that they, they shouldn't be here. Where did we come from? Oh, we weren't supposed to be here in the first place. By the laws of nature, they should not exist, but God created them in a special way. Their life is a gift. They are children of God's promise, and the entire nation is a gift of life. We, too, are children of the promise on a spiritual level. We, the church, owe our existence to God's mercy, power, and will. John chapter 1, verse 13 says, Those are children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Those who are the children of God are born of God. Born-again believers are a miracle of God. He has created you, a new creature in Christ, according to his everlasting promise. If God has created us and given us life, and if God has recreated us, giving us spiritual life, then we should be thankful people. Obedient people. Humble people. I am not my own, right? I belong body and soul to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God has established my identity. I am His. I certainly don't try to establish His identity. He reveals it to us in Scripture. God tells me how to use my body. I am to walk by faith and not by sight. I am to be governed by his spirit, not my flesh. He has transformed me to put off the old man and to put on the new man for my goodness and for his glory. It's a win-win. Rebecca's womb was good as dead. But there stands Israel. We were dead, dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, just like all the rest. But here we stand this morning because of God. He has made us 
and He has saved us. And He has set us on a trajectory of thankfulness, obedience, and humility. Two nations are in your womb tells us that God made Jacob. And the older that shall serve the younger tells us that God chose Jacob. The twins explain the lifelong tension between Jacob and Esau and the centuries-long conflict between Israel and Edom. See, it's normal for the firstborn to be heir. God's choice of Jacob reverses the normal order of things. And we've seen this before in Genesis. Older brother Cain's offering was rejected, while younger brother Abel's offering was accepted. Cain was cursed for murdering Abel, and an even younger brother, Seth, was chosen. Older son Ishmael was rejected because younger son Isaac was the promised seed. Yes, God sometimes does things we don't expect. Yes, sometimes God's ways are surprising to us, but God is not fickle or unpredictable. God is entirely predictable. He is the Almighty God who does as He pleases. He will bring about His sovereign will and purposes for His glory. Count on that. And He does so by His gracious choice. His electing love. So when Israel, Jacob's descendants, considers its origin and realizes that God made us, they may wonder, why are we God's special people? Why are we God's treasured possession? Why are we his holy nation and his royal priesthood? And the answer is here in their origin story. Because God chose them. Were they chosen because of their parents? No. Jacob and Esau had the same mother, same father, same birth date. Were they chosen on some kind of, I mean, we have all these generations populating the earth, were they chosen on some kind of ethnic basis? No. Jacob and Esau were both Shemites. No, no distinction between the two. Were, was Jacob chosen because, was Israel chosen because of something that they did to be more deserving than those who were not chosen? No. Jacob was chosen from before he was conceived, and it was announced before he was even born. It has nothing to do with Jacob, or Esau, or Israel, or Edom. It has everything to do with God. That's the humility necessary to understand God's gracious election. God chose Jacob, not Esau. It is his sovereign and gracious choice. In verse 24, when the time comes, behold, there are twins... The first comes out red and hairy looking. His name's Esau. Sounds like, Esau sounds like Seir in Hebrew, which is the, the place where the nation of Edom will eventually settle. The second comes out holding on to Esau's heel. His name's Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. Or if you wanted to make it one word, healer. As in a, this heel, not making somebody who's sick better. Esau was rough and ruddy-complected boy. He grows up to be a skilled hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob is described as a quiet man who dwells in tents. And often this description is used to, to kind of make Jacob out to be a weak boy who stayed inside next to mama's apron curtains all, or, drape, or ties all the time. But I don't, I don't think that's what Moses really has in mind here at all. 
Moses is describing the divide. Two nations are within you who will divide. He's describing the divide between these twins and the nations they will become with familiar terms. One will be the chosen line and the other will not. Esau is a skilled hunter and a man of the field. Do we know anyone else in Genesis who's been described like that? Yes. Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. In fact, he was such a mighty hunter before the Lord that there was this saying that if somebody was a mighty hunter, you would say, hey, you're like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. I'll bet people said that to Esau. Yeah, I... I can even hear Isaac telling the other dads gathered around the grill, grilling up some of Esau's meat. Hey, my son Esau's like Nimrod, a mighty hunter, huh? But Nimrod was descended of Ham, not the line of promise. Ishmael, Esau's step-uncle, was skilled with a bow. And he was also not of the line of promise. Cain, of all people, was described as a man of the field. Cain, who was bitter in heart towards his younger brother Abel. Sounds familiar. Cain, who murdered his younger brother Abel. Cain, whose line was cursed by God. You see, Moses is painting a picture of Esau that shows what God has prophesied. He will not be the one to carry on the covenant line. What about Jacob? What does he look like? Well, Jacob's a quiet man who dwells in tents. Do we know anyone else? who's been described like that in Genesis? Sure. His father Isaac. Jacob's like his father Isaac, a quiet man who dwelt in tents. And his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham was a man who dwelt in tents. And so right away, Moses wants us to see that Jacob is like Abraham and Isaac in the line of the promise. He's revealing real-life evidence of God's choice of Jacob as the next heir of the covenant. Notice mom and dad's relationship with their twin sons in verses 27 and 28. Do not parent this way. Isaac loves Esau, but why? Because Esau brings home the meat that Abraham likes to eat. Meaning that Isaac loves the meat more than he does Esau. His appetite's gotten away from his love for his son. But Rebecca loves Jacob. She simply loves Jacob. Without condition, she's devoted to Jacob. Surely, she's at least partially motivated by God's choice of Jacob. Both she and Isaac know the words that God spoke, the true words he spoke to her when, when she inquired of the Lord. There's a, sense in which, there's a sense in which Rebecca has chosen well. And yet, Isaac and Rebecca's favoritism is a, is a huge disappointment. It's going to bring bitterness. It's going to bring adversarial relationships in the family, in the household. You know, and kids can always figure that out too. Kids can always figure that out. Our choices are fickle and self-serving. God's choices, even if we do not understand them, are always right, true, and good. He is the all-powerful God who does as he pleases. And he makes no apologies to us. And he does not defend himself to us. Esau is the older and stronger and not chosen. Jacob is the younger and weaker, but he's chosen. Since Genesis chapter 1, 1, 
God has always been sovereign over all things. He has not abdicated any of his sovereignty in any way, shape, or form. He remains sovereign. And at the same time, every person is responsible to God. His sovereignty does not erase our responsibility to live his way. Let me look one more time at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell your birthright to me now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There are... Only two times, I think, when you see Esau, when he's heading out into the field, or when he's coming back home into the camp from having been out in the field, and he enters the camp after a long day's hunt, and he's starving. He's starving. You, you recognize this if you have teenage boys. They're always starving. It's been, for Pete's sake, it's been minutes since they ate, and they're starving. That's, that's what Esau. That's what Esau is doing. He's not really going to die. But he says he's so hungry he could die, and he says, give me some red stew. I mean, he sounds like an animal. Red stew, red stew. That's literally what he says. There's a, there's a lot of wordplay going on here with red. Uh, the, this word red is what he's called the stew. Uh, uh, Esau came out kind of red and ruddy, and, uh, and, then, and then the na nation's going to be named Edom, which is this word in Hebrew that sounds just like the word red in Hebrew. There's just kind of this wordplay going on that, that mixes all this together, and, and you look at Jacob, and he's not, he's not intimidated. He's opportunistic. Sure, Esau. I'll ladle up a big bowl of stew, put some bread on the plate. Let's see, what else do I need? Oh, yes, your birthright. Now. <laughs> Who cares about a birthright? Give me the stew. Absolutely. I agree with you. You don't need the birthright. But I do need you to swear. Now. And Esau swears. Worst bargain ever. What would cause Esau to make this tragic choice? Esau is a man of the flesh. He's governed by the passions of his flesh. What about Jacob? What does it mean to be a heel grabber? He was fighting to be first even at birth. He was trying to trade places. He's a usurper. He's not making a good deal with his brother. Jacob is a swindler. He's cheating his brother. Jacob seems almost ready for this, doesn't he? As if he's set a trap for the hunter. That's not what brothers are supposed to do. Parents, you want your children to look out for one another. You tell your kids, take care of one another. 
protect and help one another, not harm one another, not rip each other off. Jacob doesn't love his brother. He's cruel in his treatment of Esau. Jacob is a cheater and a manipulator. He's no better than Esau in terms of righteousness. Esau is a man of the flesh. He has no self-control. Don't feel sorry for Esau. He wants what he sees and he takes what he wants. He has no faith in God, no interest in the promises of God. That's his birthright. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 15. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are afraid of being persecuted for their faith, and so they're thinking maybe, maybe they could leave Christianity and take one step back to Judaism. Maybe they could renounce the faith but go back to this religious practice and everything would be okay and they'd escape persecution. And so the author of Hebrews writes to them, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. What a foolish choice. Esau sought to satisfy his flesh like the sexually immoral. That's not a random comment. Sexual sin is the king of our fleshly passions. Those who persist in sexual sin are trampling on the grace of God, like Esau. Don't obey your fleshly passions. Don't accept a short-term worldly gain to receive a long-term spiritual loss. And every temptation to sin is just like this, isn't it? That's what's at stake. That, that's, the, that's the cost and effect balance sheet that you have to work out. You see, both Jacob and Esau were sinners. There was nothing to commend either of them to God. Jacob was a liar and a cheat. Esau was like a dog, feeding his passions with no regard for, for God. How can either man be saved? There's only one way. Only by God's gracious choice. If God does not choose to save, no one's saved. Not Jacob. Not Esau. Moses tells us that Esau ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his own way. It's pretty ominous. This is how Esau proved that he despised his birthright. Jacob, flawed as he is, desired the birthright by faith in God's promises. But the determinative factor is God's gracious choice. We're the sinners. He's the gracious one. I want to slip into <clears throat> chapter 26. Chapter 26 is really the only chapter devoted to Isaac's life. You know, we had 10 chapters on Abraham, and we get this one chapter on Esau, because, because Isaac lives a life very much like his father Abraham. Moses wants us to see that, but Moses also then compresses Isaac's life into one chapter. Like Abraham, Isaac's faith is inconsistent. He looks better in some parts than he does in others. 
which all simply reinforces the truth that we have talked about over and over and over, that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises and he does not depend upon man's righteousness to bring about his purposes. If he did, his purposes would fail. But he does not. He chooses to accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> I, what I want to do this morning, I just want to, I want to read chapter 26. I'll stop briefly between paragraphs and just try to make a couple of comments. And I think we can move kind of swiftly uh, and yet uh, thoughtfully that way through the chapter. 26 verse 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So it's a different famine. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. So just as Abraham had a, had a uh, famine to deal with, Isaac has one. Abraham kind of wandered down into Egypt. God says, no, 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 don't do that. Isaac, you stay right here. And then God, God establishes his covenant with Abraham, now with Isaac, of land, seed, and blessing. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, oh no, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place, should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was an attractive woman in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest we die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife surely shall be put to death. So here's sojourning in the land of Canaan. He meets an Abimelech. Now, I think this is a different Abimelech. Uh, this is Abimelech, king of the Philistines. He's still in the area of Gerar, but the name Abimelech is father of a king. It's, it's very common. It's used among many rulers uh, throughout the ancient Near East. I think, this is, I think this is Isaac's Abimelech, like Abraham had an Abimelech. And then Isaac falls back on the same old self-preserving, selfish Sin of lying about his marriage. Problem, never lie about your marriage. Two, expecting his wife to defend him. Wrong. You're the man, defend your wife. But the outcome isn't so terrible. Remember when Abraham went down into Egypt and he said his, his wife is his sister. And Pharaoh actually married Sarah. And God actually enacted judgment of plagues upon him that he later removed. The second time that, uh, that Abraham and Sarah lied was to Abimelech in Gerar, and, uh, and it resulted in uh, God speaking to Abimelech and then healing of, of, of some, uh, some disease that he had placed upon the women such that they were barren. So he speaks to him, and this time, this time Abimelech figures it out himself. 
He looks out the window and sees something that has him realize that they're married. They're a married couple. What have you done to me? All three times. What have you done to us? So you see, God can, God can act in our world, even among rulers, even among unbelievers, either by bringing judgment or by speaking a word or simply through his divine providence. Abimelech just happens to look out the window and learn the truth. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled up the earth, all the wells, that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours, so he called the name of the well Essek, quarrel, because he contended with them. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that. So he also named this one Sinta, contended. And he, he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So you've got all these water rights things which are important to nomadic people and their herds. And you have Abimelech not treating, not treating Isaac's people so well by failing in their wells. But he persists. He remains faithful to sojourn in the land. And the Lord, the Lord comes to Isaac and he says, fear not. Don't you love that? Fear not for being faithful and living faithfully in the land. I'll bless you. I'm with you. The greatest blessing of God's blessings is his presence. He's going to be with Isaac and so Isaac does a wonderful thing. He builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord, which we know means he worships him. Yes, he calls out all of the true things about the name of the Lord, and he calls up to the Lord in worship and praise and thanksgiving. Verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So Abimelech's already a little intimidated 
by the size of Isaac's encampment. He sends them away. Uh, and uh, then, the, then he goes to him and he says, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> You're getting even bigger and stronger and more wealthy. I'd kind of like a treaty. I'd like a treaty where you don't do any harm to us. And, and we'll continue to do good to you, which Abimelech, you know, his idea of doing good to them doesn't seem very clear to me. I mean, he's been filling up their wells every time they try to undig them. But nonetheless, Isaac enters into a treaty with Abimelech, the Philistine. And there's peace for a time. There's peace for a time. There's relative peace for he and Abimelech. We, we might say that there's There's peace outside the camp. No warring faction there. But there's not peace inside the camp. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau is indeed going his own way. And it is not God's way. And it is not Isaac's way. We are told that he has taken two Hittite women to be his wife, his wives. Now we've already talked about polygamy. The Bible condemns polygamy. When we see polygamy in the Bible, it is always accompanied by sin and strife, just as it is here. Esau also sins against God by marrying outside the covenant. He has brought worshipers of other gods into his home and into his heart. He's moving further and further and further away from God. His walk by sight is evidence, further evidence, that he despised his birthright. Like Ishmael, he will set himself and Edom over against Jacob and Israel, and the bitterness will continue. Still, Isaac has faith in God. And hope in the promises. And the covenant continues. And that, that is all by God's gracious choice. Which is the big point of our text this morning. Paul uses this particular account of Jacob and Esau to relate to all Christians in Romans chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. Turn and look at that with me, if you would, just for a moment as we wrap up here. Romans 9 Beginning in chapter 9, I had to fight hard to not tack on an entire sermon of Romans chapter 9 for you this morning, but it seemed a little unfair without letting you know ahead of time that we'd be another hour or so. But I want you to just look at these verses as I read them. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they were not, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's in Malachi. So take a second and think, because we talked about Israel understanding why they were chosen. What is our origin? The church. Who are we, and how did we get here this morning? Why are we gathered this morning? 
to worship God when others are not? Why am I a Christian while so many around me are not? There are only two possible answers. One is works and one is grace. So let me explain. Works means that I have done something to earn my salvation. Or it could be that I I have some quality about me that merits my salvation. Neither of which is true. What I possess is a sinful character and what what I have earned with my doing is death. The judgment of God. Grace is not something earned. By definition, it's something that's given. So the only way to forgiveness in life is for the giver of grace to choose to give it. The criminal cannot demand of the judge's freedom. He can only expect judgment. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. That is God's gracious choice. There is no salvation with God without God's electing love unto salvation. Now, the wrong response to God's electing love would be to reject the God who chooses. That's what Esau did. He preferred his own way. You can rail against God's choice or you can receive God's mercy. God is not unfair. He will not accept that charge from us. Fair would be for him to justly judge and rightly condemn all of us for our sins against him. To leave us in Esau's state. But remember the covenant. He has chosen. And he will make a people and a kingdom for himself. And he will do it through his seed, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the number of that people is a number that no man can count. It's more than the sands on the seashore. And it's more than the stars in the sky. You want to talk about fair? God elected his own son to secure that redemption. God the Son took upon Himself the wrath of God the Father for our sin. He was sinless. We could say that's not fair. But we would have to say that that is grace. Dear friend, Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to you two things. He says, you cannot come unless the Father draws you. These words this morning are the Father drawing you. Where you hear the word of God, you hear God saying, come. Come to me. The second thing that Jesus says is that All who come to me, I will in no way cast out. Do you hear the guarantee? 
If you would come to God this morning, he will in no way cast you out. Friend, the door to heaven is open to you this morning if you will turn from your sins and come to Jesus by faith. And do you know what Jesus will say to you? Based on his word? You came. You came. I knew you would. Because my father called you. And I'm so glad you did. And I will never leave you or forsake you. So what we need to do, brothers and sisters, just admit our sin. You know what's great about sin? There's a cure. There's a cure for sin. When we repent of our sin, we receive grace. When we pray to God, repenting of our sin, even on Sunday morning, when we confess our sins, we will not receive condemnation, but we will receive mercy that flows from the throne of God. That's why we can boldly go to his throne in the name of Christ, who has accomplished our redemption. But we must, we must admit our sinfulness, and we must keep short accounts with God of our sin. We, we also have to just accept God for who he is. We can't make up a God of our own thinking. It will be inaccurate. It will not be him. That is not honoring. We must accept the God who chooses. Because he's a God who saves. And we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves before God. It only makes sense. He's God and he's holy and perfect. We are not. And yet... He calls us and makes us his own by the gift of his son, his sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the grave. How did we get here? God made us and God chose us. And what are we to do? We're to take the land. We're to expand the kingdom. We're to push against the gates of hell, which cannot resist the church, by telling others about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's chosen means for saving sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to humble ourselves before you because you are God. You are the one who saves. All is yours, and we seek to give you all of our heart this morning. And we desire, dear Father, that you would be drawing everyone here to you this morning by faith. And that all would receive salvation. It's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.